Tobias, welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. All right, so perhaps you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Cool. Yeah, so my name is uh, Tobias Baumann. Uh, I'm a researcher and a co-founder at the Center for Reducing Suffering, which is an organization that, that is uh, working on uh, trying to find out how we can best reduce suffering, taking into account all sentient beings and uh, the long-term future. Uh, I'm also the author of a book, uh, Avoiding the Worst, How to Prevent a Moral Catastrophe, uh, which, is, uh, go, which is talking about uh, the, the question of worst-case futures and what we can do now to prevent them from happening. And I think this is going to be the ideas that we're going to uh, explore in this podcast episode. Oh, definitely. So let's start with the central idea here, which is suffering risks or S-risks. What's the best way to frame this idea? What's the best way to introduce it? Um, so very broadly, uh, S-risks are just uh, worst-case futures that um, contain suffering on an astronomical scale, suffering on a scale that vastly exceeds everything that has um, existed so far. So, I mean, now there's, of course, all sorts of technicalities about you know, how much suffering does it have to be to, to count as an S-risk, but maybe I think that this is actually not, not so important because uh, I think it should be clear what we're talking about. We're talking about worst case futures with a, a very high level of suffering. This is certainly a grim topic and a, a dark topic. So what attracted you to, to thinking about suffering risks in the first place? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say that my background is kind of in, like, in cost prioritization, sort of motivated by EA. Like you're trying to do, do the most good. And I, I think that preventing those worst case scenarios is uh, what it means to, to, to do the most good, from my point of view, at least. Um, so that's sort of how I, how I arrived at the topic. Perhaps we could give some examples of what you're talking about, so it's, it's easier to understand. Uh, what, what would be some examples of potential suffering risks? This is actually a, a quite a tricky question, because um, when you're giving specific examples, there's always a risk that the specific example sounds quite far-fetched. Um, and in reality, most asterisks are probably unknowns, unknown unknowns, or, and it's not necessarily concentrated in like a single scenario. Um, so there's that caveat to keep in mind. But I mean, of course, it's still helpful for the listeners to, to, to hear about something. So one scenario uh, could be a malevolent dictator, like imagine a future Hitler that establishes a permanent global earth-spanning totalitarian regime, perhaps even with access to advanced technology. You can see how that, uh, that is a worst case outcome that could result in a lot of suffering. You can look at Black Mirror episodes, you know, that, that provides some inspiration and, and more examples of uh, dystopian futures of all sorts. But actually, it doesn't have to be something uh, speculative or sci-fi-ish. Uh, if you just imagine that humanity at some point expands into space and then we just continue the, the forms of suffering that we have right now, for instance, our exploitation of animals in factory farms and slaughterhouses, then that would already qualify as an asterisk if it happens on a, on a larger astronomical scale. There's some connection between human technology and the stakes at, at which we are operating. So would it be fair in, in your view to summarize human history as an ever-increasing technological capacity 
And with that, ever-increasing stakes. So we can, we can now do more than we could in 1500. And in 1500, they had whatever human activity was going on was lower stakes than today. What's the connection there with suffering risks? Yeah, I think it is, it is true what you're saying, in, in broad terms at least, that the more powerful our technology, the higher the stakes are, for better or worse. Like, we can use this, this technology to reduce suffering or to, to increase suffering. So, I mean, an example would be, uh, I've already mentioned factory farming, that would just not be possible on the scale at which it is happening if you, if you only have medieval technology. That's just not possible. Um, so that would be one example of the sort of dynamic. Uh, it is not uh, entirely straightforward because not all technology raises the stake. I, I mean, for instance, if you have widespread uh, contraceptives, that kind of might lower the stakes if it results in a long-term plateau or decline of human population. Um, and there's also a lot of technology that doesn't directly have that much to do with how much suffering there is. Uh, and of course, it can also be used to reduce suffering. So there are those caveats to, to, to keep in mind. I'm not. I'm generally careful that I'm not saying that technology is per se something bad. The point is merely that it it raises the stakes and therefore increases the risk of those worst case outcomes. Perhaps we are most interested in those technologies that are most asymmetrical, meaning that they are, they have the potential to increase the risks more than they can increase the benefits for us. What technologies are you most worried about when you're thinking about suffering risks? So one example is um, artificial sentience. Uh, if it is possible to run uh, complex uh, computer programs that become sentient or, or sentient simulations of the sort, I mean, this is explored in the aforementioned uh, Black Mirror episodes, for instance. They have some scenarios that go in, in this direction. This is sort of an as risky technology because it makes it much easier to create a lot of minds a lot of beings and because there might be there will likely be a lack of moral concern for those beings they might not have any power or, or political representation so those are those sort of risk factors that could make estrus more likely i mean of course this is uh, i'm not saying that this will happen or, or even that it's likely uh, it's just this is an example of a technology that, that uh, would be risky because of this dynamic of having potentially lots of beings that are easy to create and a possible predictable lack of moral concern for the well-being of those artificial minds, whatever you call it. So anything involving sentience or consciousness is speculative and it's difficult to reason about. We don't have a good grasp of this concept as, um, in, as we have of, say, intelligence. In your view, how likely is it that artificial sentience will develop as we are, say, training large um, AI models? So is, is this something you're worried about coming along uh, with, the, with increased intelligence in AI models? Or are you, do you foresee a scenario in which we would try to engineer artificial sentience for there to be a problem? That's a very interesting question. So... Yeah, I mean, I actually like the focus on whether or not it will be developed because what a lot of the discussion in philosophy and so on centers around is like whether it is possible in principle. Uh, I, I think the answer to that is likely, yes, that it is possible in principle to have artificial sentience. But like the, the key question is like whether or not 
future technology will actually evolve in a way that results in such sentient entities. Uh, I mean, it, it's possible in principle to build underwater cities and underwater metropolis, but you know that, that doesn't prove that we're going to do it. So the key question is like, how will future AI technology evolve? And I mean, I think that's very, very uncertain. So I'm sort of neither confidently predicting that there will be artificial sentience, nor am I confidently predicting that there won't be artificial sentience. Uh, generally, I think we have great uncertainty about what the future will be like. And I think that's probably going to be a recurring theme in this podcast. But what you were saying is that, like, the question is, do people try to create artificial sentience? Currently, it seems to me that the focus is just on using AI to solve problems. Uh, and people are neither deliberately trying to create artificial sentience, nor are they deliberately avoiding it. Uh, I mean, I don't know what that tells us about how, how likely it is that the result will be conscious uh, computer programs or call it what you will. So the, the only, the problem is, of course, that we only have sort of one, one example to draw from, which is biological animals and humans that uh, are conscious uh, as far as we know. Um, and of course, the, the evolution of artificial intelligence is, is not at all the same as, as biological evolution, where you have animals that, like, it's, used, it's sort of used by evolution as a pain and pleasure are like useful for learning. And like, then you can ask the question, is that analogous in, in the sort of AI that we currently have? Like, I mean, if you have a language model that just predicts the next word or something like that, it, it seems quite different from what happened in natural evolution. The fact that it's different does, does not prove that such systems can't be sentient, but, the, but it's kind of difficult because we only have this one example to draw from. And so, so how, how exactly would we know? Um, we can we can try to extrapolate from how we are already treating our computer programs to how we'll we'll treat them in the future. Because you, you said something interesting, which is that you predict or perhaps you 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 believe that that we will predictably not care about artificial sentience, or at least that's a scenario that you're that you fear uh, would would come about. On on the one hand, we treat uh, video game characters uh, very badly. Uh, we we. We engage in combat with them, but perhaps we 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 do this because we believe that they aren't uh, sentient. On the other hand, some chatbots um, we might we might treat as if they're conscious, even though they aren't. Uh, in my opinion, perhaps they are. Um, so, what can we learn from how we're already treating AIs um, about how we will treat them in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I think. But the sort of gut feeling that people have about whether or not a program like GPT or, or DALI or and all, the, all of that, whether it's conscious, is probably not a very good indicator of whether it actually is conscious. So in terms of whether or not people will care about it, it seems that this more depends on specific features that, that aren't actually about whether or not the, the system is sentient. Like if you... If you put the program into a robot that looks cute or something like that, then maybe people are more likely to, to care about it. Or if it sort of sounds human-like or so, then it, then, it, then it becomes more likely that people would care. But still, overall, it, it sounds like a situation that, that could be risky. Like if you look at our track record in terms of how we treat animals, I think it is, it is at least reasonable to, become, to be concerned about how we're going to treat those artificial minds. 
especially since they might be like basically completely at the mercy of whoever will run those systems. There's also, even if the, the average person cares about them, you know, you might still have some minority or sadists or so that uh, will try to use the, those systems for less pleasant purposes. I don't know. Perhaps the, the scenario you're worried about is that we will develop uh, very smart AI systems that can help us achieve tasks, but that sentience uh, comes along for the ride when, you, when we develop intelligence. And so we won't care that these systems are perhaps suffering during their training or during their deployment when we are using them uh, because it's, they are simply so convenient to use. Is that the scenario you're, you're worried about? Yes, I mean, the, the, the example of uh, animal exploitation is, is a case where it's just kind of economically useful because people want to uh, have cheap meat. Uh, it's kind of useful to, to have factory farms and, and slaughterhouses. So, uh, and a similar thing might be happening with artificial uh, sentience. Uh, maybe it's just useful to have your personal uh, AI worker assistant and people are just not going to, care much about the, the well-being of that if it is sentient. It is also quite simply possible that we will be wrong in our assessment of whether or not such systems are sentient. Just like how there, are, there were lots of philosophers or so in the past that were confident that animals are not sentient. So that's also a possible risk that we might be wrong in our assessment. Of course, you can be wrong both ways. You can also mistakenly attribute sentience to a system uh, like Lambda uh, when it isn't sentient, I think it, it likely isn't, but uh, yeah. Yeah, this is perhaps also something we could be worried about. Um, if large companies are developing AI systems that to us, they say they're engineered to feel conscious to us, perhaps because it's, it's a great product to sell a, a, an artificial friend or an artificial romantic partner, these AI models, these chatbots will then feel conscious to us. Uh, you can imagine even building their AIs into uh, robots. And we would at least waste resources uh, caring for these beings if they aren't conscious. If we put aside the, the question of how we're treating them, what this tells us about ourselves and whether you can be a, a good person if you're, if you're mistreating even an unconscious robot. The wasting of resources because you wrongly think something is sentient is maybe not a very great concern from my point of view, but maybe a greater risk is that if people, you know, if you cry wolf too often, then people will not take it seriously when there actually are conscious systems uh, or, or sentient systems, because then it will just be seen as something wacky, something like uh, un that uninformed and crazy people uh, talk about how the systems are conscious when they clearly aren't, and it's just ludicrous to think that they aren't, you know? That sort of attitude might become widespread in the AI community, and that, that would be a very bad thing. So I think it's important to, to emphasize uncertainty about this uh, when we're talking about it. There might be artificial sentience, there might not be. And uh, of course, if we, as long as we don't know, there's uh, a good case to, to be made for some sort of precautionary stance. You know, if there's a certain chance that it's sentient, I think we should still take that seriously. Yeah. And what is your current take on this? What do you believe? Setting aside all of this uncertainty and setting aside that we don't have enough data to, to determine this, what do you believe about current AI uh, models? Are they, do you think they're sentient? They're sentient? Uh, what do you think about 
say, uh, AIs in the next uh, 20 or 30 years? How likely do you think it is that, that these models will be sentient? Uh, actually, I would probably say that this is quite unlikely, perhaps very unlikely. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the uh, language models that we have right now, that Lambda, is probably not sentient. Now, within the next 20 or 30 years, so that's kind of also a question about how, how rapidly will AI advance uh, at all. Um, if, it's, if it's not too rapid, if we just extrapolate what's happening so far, then I think it's, it's rather unlikely that, that these systems will be sentient in the foreseeable future. So we're, we're more talking about something more distant, in my opinion. But some people might disagree. There's also, of course, philosophical questions here about the meaning of sentience, sentience and whether that is a binary thing or like something gradual. Like some people might be saying that they're, they're sentient to a very small degree or something like that. Okay, that, that's maybe a, a different uh, angle. Uh, yeah. So it, it raises very complicated philosophical and empirical questions. But I, I'm definitely not saying that, that the current systems are necessarily, like I, I don't really worry so much about how my laptop feels about me recording this podcast. Yeah, me neither. Okay, <laughs> so, so if we return to the to the main topic, which which uh, is this uh, this issue of suffering risks, it's it's not really an objection, but it's a reaction uh, that that I uh, have um, and perhaps other people um, have to this to this uh, problem, which is just to say I think there there's simply so much suffering in the world already. Uh, if we think about the we, your example of animals in factory farms. Perhaps we think about uh, wild animals uh, suffering in nature. We could even uh, broaden it out to talk about uh, alien civilizations that we haven't encountered yet with a lot of suffering. Uh, perhaps even the universe is infinite and therefore could potentially com contain an infinite amount of suffering. I understand that this might sound irrational, but do you think that there is simply too much suffering for us to do something about it? Are we overwhelmed by suffering such that we... We, we cannot help. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely understand that sentiment uh, and sort of have felt that myself. So I sort of get where it's coming from. I do not think that it's objectively a very strong argument because the importance of helping one being sort of doesn't depend on how many other beings there are, right? So if, if your actions can avert the suffering of, of say, a thousand individuals, then the importance of that is not lessened by the fact that there is a million, a billion, a trillion that you weren't able to help, you know, because you still helped a thousand uh, beings and uh, reduced their suffering. So uh, on this objective level, like if you're not emotional about it, uh, I think it, this, is, this is not really a strong reason to stop caring about suffering. But I sort of, understand how this might affect uh, the, the personal motivation of, of, of many people uh, when they think uh, about this topic. And how important do you think the issue of personal motivation is? Perhaps uh, one problem with, with focusing on suffering risks is that it's, it's very uh, grim to think about. And perhaps it's also, it's depressing to, to, to work with um, such that it's, it might be difficult to stay motivated over the long term. How, how how much of an issue do you think this is? I uh, I mean I think this can be a legitimate point, but but it's also not like objectively a, a strong reason not to work on estrus, or rather, 
what I would say is that for those people who can, who have the, the psychological disposition to to remain motivated to do something about it, they they should they should still continue to to work on estrus. For people who really just find it too depressing or stressful and wouldn't be able to remain productive while they they work on this topic, uh, yeah, maybe it's better to do to do something else. So one shouldn't force uh, oneself to do something that that feels. That, that is like at odds with one's psychological predispositions. But uh, I would also note that reducing estrus can mean many things. It doesn't have to mean that you constantly think about uh, worst case scenarios. You can also just, uh, for instance, estrus are arguably reduced if we manage to improve our political system, our political discourse, making it saner. Or uh, estrus are reduced if we, if we spread better values. So if you find thinking about it, too depressing, you can simply focus on those those proxies, those risk factors for asterisks, and try to address them without thinking so much, like sort of outsourcing the the issue of thinking about the details of it to, to, to people like me uh, and focus on, on those other things. So that's maybe, can be one thing to, to go around it. What's the difference, do you think, motivationally and perhaps also objectively between Framing this issue in terms of the the upside or the downside. So what 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 you're focusing on here is trying to avoid the the worst possible downsides of of what could happen in the future. Is it perhaps more motivating to 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 think of developing or helping sustain a large flourishing civilization spreading in the universe, or is that does that lead us astray somehow? I mean, I can see how this is more motivating to to some people. Um, not so much for me personally. I would just say that, that people are all uh, very different. So I kind of don't have like a single solution to those issues. I should note that my, my colleague, Magnus Winding at the, at the Center for Reducing Suffering is uh, planning to write a book on, it's called Compassionate Purpose, which is sort of addressing those questions and trying to bridge the gap between rigorous ethics and this, these issues of personal motivation and, and self-development. So he might go into much more depth on that. I, I honestly do not feel that I have a, a very strong, a, a very good solution to, to those issues of personal motivation. It it works out for me. Like I I'm able to to stay motivated to to reduce s to reduce s risks. Although I mean I, I I'm not gonna lie. I also do sometimes have have doubts of or find it depressing. So I, I certainly get where those the sentiment is coming from. In general, I think it's an interesting issue. This this question of balancing our ethical theories and how we, sh- we, we, we believe we should act uh, if, we're, if we're thinking in optimal terms with how we actually act uh, in, in everyday life and, and all of the other con- considerations that impact uh, how, we, how we think about ethics. So our personal motivations and, and uh, all of these things actually do matter and, and, and I think should, uh, practically speaking, be taken into account. I don't know if, if you think of it the same way. No, no, that sounds right. Um, I mean, I think what can be frustrating uh, for many people is, is not so much the aspect of it being depressing and more the, ap- the aspect of uh, that a single person is always going to have only a marginal impact on it. Uh, but this, this holds for any altruistic cause. Uh, I, I never said it was going to be easy. So any person trying to reduce uh, suffering in the future will only have a, a, a marginal impact. Uh, what, what does this mean? Could you tell us about uh, the numbers here? It's just that 
I am one person among uh, 8 billion. And so the impact that my actions have on how, how the future is, is going to go is, is going to be relatively small. But I mean, as I was saying earlier, I don't think that is a good argument to despair because like the absolute number of beings that we can help is, is still actually very large because there are such large numbers of, of animals and, and, and sentient beings uh, now and in the future. The, so that means that the absolute number of, of beings that we can help is still very large, despite the fact that it's a small fraction of, of the total that we can affect. So uh, there's that. How do, how do you think about the distribution of impact per person? If we, if we take a person such as uh, George Washington or Jesus or someone like that, they seem to me to have enormous impact over the future. Do you, do you think this is less likely to happen now because, say, uh, more avenues are explored by, by people? It's, diff, it's, more, it's, uh, it's more difficult to make a difference. Or do you think we could see a, a Washington or a Jesus uh, now that, that, with the same level of perhaps even, even a bigger impact on the future? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, I mean, you would, of course, always only know in retrospect, you know, to people alive at Jesus' time, he was probably just one, one religious preacher among many or so. Like, and, and it wasn't clear at the time that this would, was going to become a, a dominant religion. So likewise, it might just not be clear at the moment what is going to become a dominant uh, idea or way of thinking. It is, I think, it, these issues of impact attribution can be very difficult because like, can you attribute all this impact to like Jesus or George Washington and so on? Or can you, like, is it just that people later on who endorsed those ideas that, that, that it is them that, you know, have sort of helped or like is George Washington in, in, com in conjunction with like the, the later people who endorsed his ideas that, so like, how do you divide the, the impact between those that, that that's, that raises like very complicated questions that I don't really uh, have an answer to. Yeah. All right. Let's perhaps take a an objection to to suffering focused ethics or to thinking about suffering risks that that is more objective in my opinion at least. This is just the question of knowing what we should do. Say we are we are all aboard uh, the the program with trying to prevent future suffering. The next question then is is having good knowledge about how to act such that we actually reduce future suffering. Uh, how much of a problem do, do you think this is? And do you think, because this is a general problem, do you think it's a, it's a specific, it's, a, it's specifically a problem for trying to reduce suffering risks? I would say it's probably a problem for, for anything that is about influencing the long-term future, right? That, that entails both suffering risks and, and other forms of the long-term future. I would certainly agree that it is difficult to influence the long-term future for several reasons. I've won. One is simply that it is difficult to know what is going to happen in the future, that it's difficult to predict that. Another reason is that future decision makers, future actors might undo anything that we do now and just move in a different direction unless there is some sort of lock-in. Um, so I certainly agree that it's difficult to influence the long-term future. However, I I mean, it, it is gradual, right? It's, it's not all or nothing. Uh, it seems unlikely to me that there would be nothing whatsoever that we can do to reduce asterisk or influence the long-term future. And of course, then you can make an argument that the number of individuals that is affected in, with an asterisk, or more generally, the number of individuals that live in the future is just so much larger 
than the number of, of beings in the present. If it's like a million or a billion times as large, then if you use an expected value framework, that sort of outweighs the, the difficulty of knowing what exactly to, to do about it. I mean, I think I can understand why to some people that doesn't feel very satisfactory on a gut level. But I nevertheless think it is objectively a good argument. So what we're thinking about here is that we have such astronomical stakes there that could potentially be so much suffering that we could prevent in the future that even though we are, we are very uncertain about how to prevent this suffering, the stakes makes up for our uncertainty in a sense if you, if you apply the, the expected value uh, frameworks or uh, if you take that uh, calculation. Does, does that argument make you uneasy? Because you could, you could also uh, perhaps take it even further and think about, well, what is the probability that, um, that, that there could be infinite happiness or infinite um, suffering, and that might then outweigh completely uh, any, anything else you could think about? So is there, is there a risk of becoming obsessed or fanatical when, when we think in, in, in this framework? Yeah, sort of Pascal's mugging. I mean, I definitely think that there is this risk. And, and so there's, there's a balance to be struck here in, in several regards. Like, you, sh you should take those more speculative ideas seriously, but also not too seriously, like taking them with a grain of salt and not putting too much faith in, in a particular speculative idea. I think there are, there are good arguments for focusing on the long-term future, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we should disregard the short term entirely. I mean, I think there, are, there is a lot of very valuable work that is focused on more shorter term issues. So the people that are advocating for farmed animals now, I mean, I think they have a very valuable and worthwhile cause and should keep doing this. Likewise, you already mentioned the, the, the cause area of, of wild animals, animals living in the nature, in nature, which, I mean, they actually constitute the, the vast majority of sentient beings on earth right now. And so, uh, doing something to help them is, is also a very worthwhile cause. I mean, there, there are people doing important research on that at Animal Ethics at the Wild Animal Institute. Uh, so, you know, shout out to them. So in an, in an effort to try to avoid becoming fanatical or obsessed with, with um, small probabilities of very large quantities of, of happiness or suffering, uh, we spread out uh, what our activities such that we are we're doing something now and we are thinking about the future also. Um, what I'm hearing you advocate for is simply that thinking about suffering risks, the risks of, of uh, suffering in the future, is relatively underweight in our portfolio of actions uh, compared to to how we should weigh it. Is is that the right way to to frame this? Yeah, that seems right. Um, I mean. Like it just makes sense for me personally, for instance, to to focus on specialize in, in this because there are already lots of people that that work on those other causes. So I've picked uh, thinking about asterisks as as what I am working on. So what you're alluding to is that asterisks are, are quite neglected, which is something I, I agree with. And then, of course, the interesting question is what are the reasons for that? Uh, and some of them you already mentioned. It can just be be stressful to. To think about these scenarios, it's easier to look away. It's, it's not a pleasant topic for small talk and dinner conversations. It has been my experience, at least. <laughs> and so there are, there are cognitive biases that can cause us to, to mistakenly dismiss asterisks, which is 
wishful thinking about uh, how the future is going to be uh, great anyway, or I mean, there's a, a concept of, of denial of uh, ongoing uh, suffering, ongoing atrocities, and that that sort of also applies to potential future atrocities. It's just more pleasant to look away, to to flinch away, and, and not you know bother with it, basically. Perhaps unpack that a, a little bit. So when you when you say wishful thinking and denial, um, how does that work? Uh, how how do how do we how does that cognitive bias uh, influence uh, our willingness to take uh, suffering risks seriously? Yeah. So so wishful thinking is just the tendency to endorse uh, hypotheses that we wish to be true rather than that are objectively true. And of course, we would all wish for S risks to be uh, extremely unlikely or speculative. We would all wish for the future to uh, go well by default anyway, right? Uh, so that is uh, a factor that can bias people towards uh, dismissing S risks. Although, of course, I, I also want to be careful here because there might also simply be legitimate reasons. Uh, and like, it, it, it might be a bit arrogant to just say like, okay, everyone else is biased, basically. Well, uh, so, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe there are legitimate reasons why people, why, why asterisks have not gotten that much attention. Although the level of attention given to it, I think, is increasing. And there is interest in it. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's true that uh, these scenarios are very unlikely. Maybe it's true that, that we can't do anything about it. I, I, you strike me as a humble, humble person. I, I don't think that you, that you're just explaining away uh, disagreements with accusing others of, of bias. We will go through. I, I wrote down a list of uh, potentially justified reasons to object here. But uh, before we do that, uh, perhaps explain how scope neglect, the bias of scope neglect, uh, could influence our unwillingness to take uh, suffering risks seriously. Yeah, that is another major bias that that can lead people to dismiss as risks. Uh, we just don't really feel the numbers on an intuitive level, right? I mean, the suffering like of, of a single individual can feel more emotionally uh, moving or touching than the, the potential hypothetical future suffering of, of, of a trillion or something like that, which is, we, we don't tend to feel emotionally about that. In fact, there's also something called the proportion bias. It feels more satisfying to help 10 out of 10 than to help 11 out of a thousand, but it's, I mean, objectively, of course, it is better to help 11, right? Uh, so that, that's why I would call this a bias. And then you, you also mentioned at some point, uh, belief digitization, uh, which we could also call, uh, call black and white thinking. And this perhaps, uh, is just, if we believe that say, uh, suffering risks are very unlikely. Um, say that there's a 1% risk that uh, that one of these uh, suffering events will, will occur in the future. Then we round down to zero and then we say, well, then it's just completely uh, unlikely that uh, impossible that it could happen. Um, and you could see how that could influence our willingness to take it seriously. Um, do, do, do you think you have a, a disposition to, to be more objective uh, in, in the way you, you handle probabilities or is it, is it perhaps uh, that you have some some uh, that you're educated in a certain way to to understand the small probabilities yeah i mean i definitely think that uh, it is very important in general to think in terms of nuances and avoid like a black and white and all or nothing thinking of any sort simply because there is so much uncertainty about all of those questions i mean i don't know if there's anything about 
me personally that does that. Uh, so I want to be careful about that. But um, and of course, I mean, just just to be fair, there, there might also be biases going the other direction. I, mean, I don't know. Something might you might say that you know it's just sexy to think about those uh, sci-fi scenarios, and that's just more intellectually exciting than getting your hands dirty and, and doing something in the real world. So that's why we're doing it. I don't know. That could be a potential counter bias. So, but on balance, I think I, I do think that wishful thinking and uh, the tendency to look away from from these dark thoughts uh, is a quite strong potential bias. What What do you think is is, is strongest here? Is it our our tendency to uh, look away to deny uh, suffering or or our unwillingness to engage with small probabilities of uh, very bad events? What what's most active here? I would probably say that the, the former has is probably what I would give more weight. I mean, there, there is this question of like whether or not people are generally biased about small probabilities. I'm not entirely sure if I buy that. There are some. I mean, sometimes people also talk too much about things, uh, some sort of catastrophes that are very unlikely. So, I mean, I think I could see this going both ways. Uh, I'm not sure if people are generally biased about small probabilities or or if so, in, in what way exactly. That that seems complicated to me. Whereas the point that people tend to look away from suffering, from atrocities, from, from dark things, unpleasant things, uh, that seems like a fairly clear and uh, strong bias to me. How do you view the issue of us, say, taking actions that uh, unwilling, where we unwillingly increase future suffering? Uh, one one thing I I was thinking about uh, was this issue of artificial sentience that we touched upon earlier. Um, imagine that we, in an effort to try to prevent this, research artificial sentience. But by researching it, we understand it better, and we make it more. It, we we make it easier to create artificial sentience. So that might be a case in which we we are against our will, um, create increasing the risks of future suffering. Just because there's so much uncertainty in this area that we're trying to engage with, might we uh, do harm when we're trying to do good? Yeah, that's a great question um, because. There is definitely a risk that our actions can backfire in, in many different ways. And therefore, uh, we should definitely be careful. Um, one should avoid doing research that, that makes it easier to create artificial minds, or at, at least as long as we do not have enough moral progress to, to ensure that they're treated well. Like that's, that, that should you know, come first before you create them, ideally. Another conceivable risk is that... Um, one might inadvertently empower malicious actors, and, and there are PR risks. Perhaps I think that the most important risk to be aware of is, is the risk of a backlash against certain ideas. I think there are certain ideas that we've discussed that might sound crazy to, to many people if it's not communicated in a careful way. So, uh, And we don't want those things to become part of a, a polarized uh, political debate, a culture war, I think that would be a, a very bad development if, if that were to happen. So that's perhaps uh, the largest backfire risk uh, to keep in mind. So it's important to, to be careful about how to communicate those ideas and to emphasize um, positive sum cooperation and, and personal integrity. Coming back to this idea of, of great uncertainty in general, I just think that it is a 
a strong reason why we need to reflect carefully about our our views, our priorities, and why we should do thorough research before jumping to any premature actions. Yeah, you, we could imagine various examples of, uh, say, if you were concerned about trying to prevent future suffering in the past, say, in the 13th century, what might you have grasped, on, grasped onto there where if you were prematurely certain uh, about what you were trying to do, you could have done a lot of harm. And perhaps, you know, perhaps we're in the same situation now. So is it, would it be true to say that one of the main ways to engage with trying to prevent suffering risks is to gain knowledge, is to do research, because we're at an early stage in our knowledge? Uh, yes, I think that's definitely true. The way I would put it is that what's most important now is, is uh, to put future uh, S-risk reducers, suffering reducers, in a, in a better position to, to reduce S-risks. Uh, sort of, you could call it capacity building. Uh, like one aspect of that is simply to get more people interested in the ideas to build a community. But another aspect is what you could call wisdom building to, to increase our knowledge of, of those issues. And, and that will put future people in a better position to, to reduce asterisk. It, it is precisely for that reason that I, I don't really share the, the sort of defeatism that we can't do anything about it now, because what you can do about it now is to, to research it and to put future people in a better position to do something about it. Yeah. And in terms of people in the past, uh, it is also worth noting that sometimes they did things that were very impactful, like Enlightenment philosophers writing about democracy and the rule of law, uh, early animal advocates, and so on. So it's, it's not true that nobody in the past was able to, to have a positive and, and arguably like a predictably robustly positive impact on, on the future. So that's maybe one argument to push back on, on this idea that we, we can't do anything. In addition, it, it's worth noting that reducing short-term suffering also isn't always that easy when you take into account the fact that the vast majority of, of sentient beings on Earth are animals living in nature, perhaps marine animals, perhaps small animals like invertebrates, perhaps insects, if insects are sentient. Uh, and so then it, it, it's not so easy to know what, what to do about that either. So you're thinking that even um, when we're trying to reduce suffering in the short term, our actions, the consequences of our actions will extend into the future, so, such that perhaps it's, it's difficult to avoid uh, thinking about the actions uh, long into the future, our actions long into the future when we're, when we're thinking about what to do. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems right to me. I, I don't think it's a very convincing approach to say that we just only look at the short-term suffering because, as you're saying, everything we do probably does have ripple effects on, on the longer term. The problem is more that it's not always easy to predict what those ripple effects are. So you could say that on average, it, it, it's sort of 50-50 and, and washes out. Like, I mean, I think there's something to that, but again, it's, it's, it's hard to argue that this is entirely true for everything that we do. Again, like the, the people in the past that, that were, for instance, promoting human rights or, or the rule of law or something like that, I mean, was it really 50-50 whether or not that, that is good or bad? Um, it seems to me that they, they, they could have reasonably thought and did think that it is good to spread those ideas and, and they were right about that, right? So I think it's, it's uh, 
wrong to argue that just everything is, is sort of 50 50. That, that seems to be taking it too far. When we're thinking about reducing our uncertainty about uh, reducing future suffering, we should perhaps take into account that, or at least I think that the, the fields of human knowledge where there are direct feedback loops or short feedback loops are the fields of human knowledge where, where humans have advanced the most. And perhaps when we're thinking about influencing the long future, we can't get feedback because uh, the results of our actions are, say, 100 or 1,000 years into the future. And so the, the feedback loops are, are very long. Is it perhaps a better approach to try to tackle problems that are more uh, directly in front of us in time, so more short-term issues, then trying to learn from that and then be in a better position to influence the long-term future? That is, that's an interesting Argument, and I definitely agree that this lack of feedback loops—that it's uh, a major problem in this endeavor to reduce asterisks or to have an impact on the long-term future in general. So, like, I mean, this is also something that like applies to all of long-termism, basically, not not just asterisk reduction. I'm I'm less less convinced that uh, doing some work to to reduce short-term suffering is necessarily a good solution to that. So. That might have some feedback loops, but the question is like whether or not, whether or not those are the relevant uh, feedback loops. I mean, th even there, the, the question is like, well, yeah, well, what sort of feedback are you getting exactly? So, I mean, if you're, you can advocate for better animal welfare laws, for instance. So, I mean, maybe you're getting feedback about whether or not you're actually going to be able to make progress to getting like a certain specific law enacted. Okay, you can get feedback on that. But I mean... Is that much feedback about like how does that help us to to reduce suffering in, in the longer term future? So is that it's not necessarily a very clear feedback signal for that question of how we best reduce suffering in the long term, right? So that's that's maybe a problem with this sort of approach. Makes sense. So for the listeners who are interested in learning more about the, these topics, where should they go? Which websites or books or papers should they read? Oh, gee, I mean, there's uh, lots of impossible. Uh, things. Um, so I would, of course, recommend the website of, of, the, of the Center for Reducing Suffering. There, the, the Center on Long-Term Risk uh, also is interested in nest risk reduction, but with a slightly different bent, more focused on, on AI, on cooperative AI. Maybe we're going to talk about that uh, too later on. Uh, there is, I mean, Brian, a, a classic would, of course, be Brian Tomasic's uh, website on, on reducing suffering. I would recommend uh, Magnus Winding's uh, blog, but of course, of course, one shouldn't, you know, just read uh, stuff from people that that you agree with. That's that's not a good practice. You know, so one should probably read a broader set of, of offers uh, all over the internet on, on all sorts of topics. Definitely, great, Tobias. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been very interesting. Thanks for having me. <laughs>